Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts. I'm Andy Boyd. Today I'm speaking with Harmony Bench about their new book, Perpetual Motion, Dance, Digital Cultures, and the Common. Harmony, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. So I looked at your, um, your, your profile on, you teach at Ohio State, and I looked at your, uh, your, your faculty page, and you have quite an interesting uh, path into academia. You have a BFA <laughs> in dance, and I think you have another degree in performance studies. Could you talk a bit about kind of how you became a dance scholar? Mm, yeah. Well, uh, yes, I, I, my undergraduate, I have two degrees. One is a BFA in ballet, and the other is a BA in women's studies, both of which were from the University of Utah. And growing up, I was someone who was always very interested in, in movement and, and dancing, and um, I thought that that was going to be my career. I, I, you know, I didn't quite know what it meant to be a, a, a ballerina on, you know, on some giant stage, but I was certain that that was my, um, uh, my journey. Uh, and then when I got to college, you know, I just kept asking questions. I just couldn't stop, you know, much to the chagrin of some of my teachers. Um, I just didn't take anything for granted in terms of, well, why are we doing it this way? Why are we doing it that way? What are the implications? Um, and so I just kept asking questions all the way through a PhD and into a into an academic career. I think that's really um, uh how it happened, I didn't, I didn't start out thinking that, well, obviously, I'm going to be a scholar, obviously, I'm going to be a professor. It just it, it kind of is the um, trajectory that organically emerged from, yeah, the, the, the path that I'm, that I was on. And, you know, I'm one of those people that believes really strongly that um, everything always comes back. So even though I'm not, um, uh, you know, I never did become the prima ballerina. Um, I do still teach ballet at uh, the Ohio State University. So I never, I, you know, my roots always traveled with me. Yeah. I wonder, because you, you mentioned having a, BF, uh, a BA in um, women's study or gender studies. I'm not sure which, what term you used. Was, was that part of your questioning about ballet, the sort of somewhat antiquated gender norms of the ballet world? Was that part of what you started questioning at that time? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I also, you know, I grew up in, in Utah and Idaho, and uh, I grew up within a very conservative faith community. Um, and so, you know, it just, uh, the the types of questions that I was encountering in a, in a, feminist framework really opened up some things that I hadn't really considered before. Um, and then because I was uh, practicing ballet, that became the the principal focus of that questioning. Um, but certainly it, it kind of was more broad than just ballet practice. 
Could you talk a bit about what the spark of inspiration was behind writing this book, Perpetual Motion? Yeah, so <laughs> I, I don't know if it was a spark. It, all origin stories maybe are um, less inspiring than um, we hope that they are. Um, you know, I just I spent a lot of time um, on the early, well, the, you know, the the web in the late 90s. Um, it was something that I was interested in. It was something that, you know, um, I only had access to because I was a university student. Um, and a lot of changes were happening. And I just kind of kept with that interest and watched the changes over time um, as, you know, different platforms became available. Um, you know, I was interested to discover <laughs> that you could put a dance on a CD-ROM uh, and later I was interested, you know, in how dance began to circulate uh, on YouTube. Um, and so it was it was also this kind of evolution of interest. Um, I have always been interested in dance on screen. Um, so one of the one of the larger fields in which I participate is, is screen dance. Um, and my interest has been in um, primarily these these Internet uh, enabled um, web circulated forms of, of dance. Uh, and I, it, it was just one of those things that I kind of grew up alongside, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. Uh, and at a certain point I realized that nobody else at that time was really thinking about what it meant to put dance online. Um, and you know, the different machinations, um, the, the, the different understandings that needed to be brought to what dance was, what, counted as composition, what counted as choreography, how these things are modified for, uh, not only for the screen, but also for um, interaction and later for participation. Um, but yeah, it was something that I kind of grew up alongside. And, and so it became a natural um, interest. I've spoken to some choreographers, including on this podcast, who really think that dance has to be live, that there's a certain energy to live performance that really can't carry over into any other medium. How do you respond to that? I think that uh, dances that are created to be seen live need to be seen live. Uh, but I do think that there are a lot of dance practices that um, are created for viewing on screen. And, you know, those are specifically created to be seen on screen. That's the, that's kind of a medium specificity. Um, you know, I, I, because I am a, I come from a place of being a movement practitioner, a dance practitioner. I also have deep investments in the kind of co-present uh, dancing body. I think that there's something really deep and transfer, transformational in that relationship. Um, but it's also the case that we have always mediated dance. As long mm -hmm. as we have had the technology to do so, we have put dance in some kind of container, some kind of inscription. Um, it's only just, you know, it, in the past few decades that we have had um, really this kind of radical opening up of video technologies and, and you know, social media now, where we can actually talk about a, a kind of rival situation for the circulation of dance. You know, previously when we were writing in foyer notation, for example, not a whole lot of people could read that. Um, but but body-based transmission has always been accompanied by mediation, whether it's print-based mediation, whether it's mediation in film and cinema, 
whether it is mediation on the internet. So I believe strongly in the power of co-present human bodies. And at the same time, I believe very strongly that uh, transmission occurs always supported um, through the technologies that we have available to us. Right. There's a version of that uh, of that argument, the argument that I asked you to respond to that would sort of say that like Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers musicals don't count, which seems <laughs> ludicrous to me. <laughs> <laughs> Let me tell you what, so many people learn to dance by watching Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. Um, so that leads me to my next question, which is, as you said, dance has been mediated for a long time and has been mediated on film for a long time. There was even dance in, in silent films in the mm-hmm. 1910s and 20s. So um, what is different about the Internet? I mean, you, you frame your book sort of mid 90s to mid 2010. So what's what's new about that form of dance that makes it sort of formally and uh, theoretically different from, yeah, like a Ginger Rogers musical? Mm hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you for that question. What's different? Well, one is the accelerated pace by which dances circulate. Uh, another is the people who have access to that circulation. So it's one thing if you're, you know, watching. Let's just keep with Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. Uh, it's one thing if you're if you're watching them in the theater and you know, kind of trying to remember some steps uh, and then take that home and and try it out. It's another. Um, to be uh, kind of uploading your own response uh, very quickly after and receiving, you know, uh, feedback on your on your execution. So one is the accelerated pace. Another is the ability to participate uh, in the media themselves rather than um, I'm going to watch a film. I'm going to try it on in my body. I'm going to, you know, just do it privately or maybe with some friends. Um, something, you know, this is, this is, uh, particular to the, t- to the era of, of internet, uh, based, um, dance pieces, but another, another difference is, uh, what we, what we once called, what we once thought of, and I, I think we continue to do so in terms of interactivity. Um, so the idea that, um, you could set Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers dancing along different pathways or speed them up or slow them down. Um, this is not something that would have been intrinsic to a, a cinematic experience. That said, there are a lot of inheritances. Um, you know, I was talking earlier about, you know, we have always mediated uh, dances, but, but some are created specifically for the screen. And then I would say that we should be looking at, well, what is the what is the camera? What is the interface? Um, what are the contexts and framings of the dance um, that are happening um, that set it apart or or set it um, set it up as a specifically um, uh, technologically mediated or digitally mediated uh, dance phenomenon? So we've talked a bit about dance. We've talked a bit about digital culture. Um, the third element of your subtitle is the common. Could you describe what the concept of the common means to you and how it intersects with your arguments about dance and digital culture? Yeah. The common is a little bit tricky. Like on, on, the, on the face of it, it seems like a very simple concept. And it is. It is really. Um, but the way I'm trying to think about it in this book is to... Um, use it in a way to help us think through the travel of dance across, you know, many people's bodies uh, in a, in a technologically enabled way. Um, 
using a, a framework that doesn't that doesn't default to appropriation that you know admits that within the framework, but also tries to think about um, how dance travels now, how it is technologically facilitated, and what are the ethical implications of that of that transmission or of that traveling. So I use the common to to try to work toward a language um, to to think through that. Um, uh, trans, the phenomenon of, of dance transmission online. Um, mostly I'm following Hart and Negri um, in my usage. So there's a way in which the, the common is understood to be the commons, um, something that anyone can access, um, something that uh, is available to all. Um, and there's another version of the common, which is about social production. So the um, what we produce between us when we come together uh, and that facilitates our interaction. Um, so in the book, I'm trying to think about uh, dance as common in a way where um, dance is something that we mutually produce. We, we always co-produce it. Um, but by being a, a common, it's something that also has um, rules attached, for lack of a better word. There, there are certain protocols of engagement, and part of what I'm trying to advocate for is bringing some of those protocols of engagement back, things like citation, things like, um, you know, uh, social media encourage us to just share things very quickly without context. So slowing down to provide further contextualization. Um, one of the things that I talk about in the book is, is thinking about dance as a gift of the common. In other words, dance is something that we mutually co-produce, uh, something that facilitates our coming together, um, and, and it kind of uh, manifests our mutual belonging in that way. But it, it, also, it, it also entails some social ties that we have to be aware of. Um, and I think that part of the problem uh, has been that, that people circulate movements, uh, they embody them without an understanding of their context or, or history, uh, and they, they see them as kind of these decontextualized gestures or, or moves that anybody can take up, which technologically, yes, they can. Physically, yes, they can. Um, but part of the question is, what are the ways in which we should take up movement? Right. That sort of reminds me of the like Harlem Shake Challenge of a couple mm -hmm. years ago, where yeah. I remember a video of someone going around Harlem showing people videos of this dance that had supposedly originated in Harlem and none of them recognized it at all. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Um, so this idea of the common, I think, is really interesting. And, and it seems like that was an idea that people, a, a way that people theorized the early Internet pretty, mm -hmm. pretty often, that it was this sort of common space. Yeah. Um, that had been largely funded through public expense. Um, and it seems like what we've seen over the past sort of 20 years is a, a version of the enclosure movement <laughs> where where these giant tech corporations have, you know, really taken over the Internet so that, you know, almost everything we do on the Internet is is on a platform owned platform or supported or by app. one of, mm -hmm. yeah, three or four uh, giant corporations. Um, how would, do you feel like that has changed the way that dance circulates on the Internet? I need to think about that a little bit. Um, certainly it channels the way dance circulates into, uh, kind of recognizable formula. Mm -hmm. Um, so whether people are sharing via Instagram, whether they're sharing via TikTok, whether they're sharing still on Facebook, 
or, you know, <laughs> if people still upload content to YouTube, um, you know, each platform assumes or maybe better than assumes, imposes uh, or maybe, you know, to keep in the theme with the, uh, of the book, choreographs a way of um, doing dance in that space. So I think that what we see with um, all of these different platforms is that in responding to the needs of the platform, um, artists, choreographers, amateurs, fans, they they reproduce the logic of the platform in the in the dances that they upload. Now, this may or may not be a good thing, right? Because the theater is also a platform. The theater also imposes a certain kind of logic. The studio is also a platform. It also imposes a certain kind of logic. The club is also a platform. So I don't think that that is necessarily um, a, a reason to... Uh, now, get, don't get me wrong. There are many reasons <laughs> to... Uh, critique uh, the the way we might think about platforms and apps as being a new enclosure movement uh, of, of the internet. Um, but at the same time, I don't think that that is something that is substantively different from all of the other platforms um, that we see dance occupy. Um, dance is always responding to some kind of a container in which it is put. Yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Um, so you wrote this book, presumably before coronavirus, yeah, <laughs> given that it was published this year, just my, given my knowledge of the schedule of academic publishing, uh, you probably didn't write it the same year it was published. Um, but right. has the quarantine changed how you think about any of these issues at all? Um, yes and no. You know, when I, when I wrote the book, I was like, the, the, the whole first chapter is really dance on the internet prior to social media. And there was a part of me that felt a little bit apologetic about it. Like, oh, it doesn't really, you know, fit in the overall argument that I want to make, but it is this prehistory. And during these times of, of lockdown and quarantine, uh, those works that were made <laughs> for the early web that, that prioritize repetition and even thematize that repetition to, to think about stuckness, uh, to think about... Um, uh, you know, n uh, not being able to escape, being confined into the kind of repetition of the day to day, um, those works held such renewed, um, uh, you know, interest for me um, mm -hmm. in this particular time in a way that, you know, I thought that I had been laying out this, this kind of prehistory of the thing that really interested me. And, you know, everything comes back. Um, and so, it, in fact, in reading through, um, that first chapter uh, actually really resonates in a way that I wasn't expecting. Um, you know, I talk about dance in public and, you know, flash mobs. And, you know, one of the things that, I, that I'm thinking about is, well, that doesn't happen anymore. But at the same time, it, it does differently. So one of the things that we're seeing is um, 
uh, all of these ways that people are taking their physical practices outside, um, outside of the studio onto the lawn, um, uh, and and kind of respatializing practices that that may have been uh, practiced indoors, you know, outside of the public's view. So there's a way in which the the notion of dance in public is is ch- has changed, uh, will continue to change in ways that I find um, provocative and interesting. I'll be very curious to see if we will continue to like what, what the resonances will be or what the implications will be of, of continuing to dance in public um, during corona um, as compared to, you know, the the phenomenon against which I'm analyzing dance in public in the book is, is this kind of post 9-11 securitization of, of public spaces. Um, and I think that the way people move through public spaces is very different right now. Um, and I think that it will be different for, for some time to come, I think. I mean, obviously, another thing that has, has changed is how dance uh, exists online, um, you know, where I had been talking primarily about social media. And, you know, clearly we see dance challenges and um, uh, practices circulating through TikTok like never before. Um, but also we're seeing those studio-based practices come online. So people are doing Instagram live or people are zooming, uh, in order to continue in their physical practices, um, when they can't actually physically come together. Um, have you done any, any teaching online? Uh, teaching of movement practice? Yeah. Yeah. So it's such an interesting phenomenon. I, I've both, uh, taken classes and taught some. Um, and it requires a really different um, logic. You know, it's very different uh, when you're looking at a very tiny body on a screen uh, as compared to, um, you know, a three-dimensional um, human body in front of you. Um, some, of, some of the differences and, and challenges, I think, are really... And we think about this in terms of the larger zoomification of our world right now, uh, connecting through the screen. Um, this is something that we are habituated to doing maybe one-on-one, maybe one-on-a-few, um, but the kind of real-time screen-based um, transmission of physical practice is, I, I think, a, a really interesting shift. Um, I think it's something that has been going on for a while, but again, this is, this is just amplified um, something that was already occurring. And yeah, like watching, watching tiny figures on the screen and trying to discern, um, uh, you know, what it is that their bodies are doing, how you might be able to guide them, uh, in, in the practice, whether you just walk away from the screen entirely and, and allow your, um, uh, cueing and, and feedback to be just uh, within the kind of verbal architecture, uh, almost like almost like, like listening to a podcast while you're dancing or, or while you're uh, engaged in a, a practice. Um, yeah, it's it's super different. It's super different. It's it's interesting. Um, getting back to the sort of meat of your book, you kind of anchor each of your chapters in a case study. And the first of which I'm, I'm not sure how to pronounce this name, but I think it's like somnambules. Or something like that. Yeah, some number. Uh, mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Um, uh, could you describe this piece? Yeah. So it's, um, I, I find it actually to be a, a very beautiful piece. Um, so it's, you, you start on a, on a grid and as you mouse over, um, this grid of images, the, the sounds of a co-present audience are, are stirred up. And what you find in each of these, um, uh, each, each image on this grid uh, takes you to a different scene. Um, and each scene is this kind of carnivalesque, uh, opulent, um, decadent, um, rich, richly imaged um, uh, display of some kind of death. <laughs> what, I, what I think of as a, as a kind of uh, techno death. Um, so the images are very ghostly. They repeat themselves. There's something very strange um, uh, about uh, each of the scenes, uh, very haunting. Um, but it's one of the pieces that I stumbled on fairly early in this project that that really made me feel like this would be a compelling um, this would be a compelling project uh, because like there were works of enough. Um, substance by which I don't mean like um, aesthetic or intellectual substance, but like actual duration or length or um, ways that you can go about experiencing them. So Somnambule was one of the, um, uh, it wasn't, it wasn't one of the first interactive dances, what I call hyper dances, um, but it is one that is uh, episodic in nature. It uh, has an incredibly rich set of imagery and sound uh, highly choreographed in terms of the camera as well as the the movement. Um, yeah, you should look it up. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I will. Um, there and there were sort of like surprisingly utopian claims made for interactive media in these totally. heady days of the early internet, um, mm-hmm. which you're somewhat skeptical of, and I think you know history has somewhat borne you out on that. Uh, what's <laughs> What's the root of your skepticism of these? Well, first of all, what are what were some of these claims, and then why do you feel like they were a bit overblown? Well, you know, we used to think of interactivity in terms of a, a kind of radical democracy. We used to think about it in terms of like this is the death of the author. This is the co-production of the text by the user. Isn't this so very liberatory? And my skepticism was kind of uh, born out of a, a, a frustration that, well. I can, I can do a very uh, prescribed set of um, actions that will cause a very prescribed set of reactions, um, and so I, I, I felt like um, these were differences that I could introduce that that actually didn't make much of a difference. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it it didn't it didn't change the work in a fundamental way. Uh, it didn't alter. It wasn't like choose your own adventure where like, you know, the way you navigate sets you uh, onto a, a different uh, version of the story or a, a different version of the of the dance. Um, and, and within the kind of performing arts framework, we have an understanding of the way scores work, of the way um, scripts work. Um, so there's always a certain amount of freedom of interpretation. Um, but what I wanted to suggest with these um, interactive, these hyperdances, uh, these interactive, mostly web-based, but also tablet-based um, choreographies, is that 
it, it might be important for us to distinguish between the differences that can make a difference and the differences that cannot make a difference. And when we confuse the latter for the former and, and kind of get invested in a rhetoric of freedom, that's actually politically disabling. It's actually quite, I think, politically dangerous uh, to mistake um, differences that cannot make a difference with, you know, to conflate that with a sense of freedom and democracy, um, which, is, which were some of the claims that were made on, on behalf of uh, early interactive media. Um, yeah, so one of the interesting kind of arguments going off of that is that these kind of viral dance crazes actually are are sort of more interesting in a way because the differences that uh, occur in various iterations of a of an online dance, uh, you know, sort of viral craze are often are quite consequential to the extent that there's sort of a telephone game whereby mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, at a certain point, the original dance looks nothing like what people are claiming is, you know, quote unquote, the same dance. So right. could you talk a bit about about those and kind of when that emerged and, and what you find interesting and also maybe uh, problematic about about that phenomenon? Well, it emerged, you know, back to Fred and Ginger, it emerged as a <laughs> phenomenon, you know, uh, when people began looking at mediated diversions of, of dances and mapping them onto their own bodies. In terms of um, digital and, and social media, um, you know, YouTube is really something that enabled um, viral media as such to, to develop. Um, but the logic is actually, I, I think, um, you know, it comes from MTV, it comes from music video, it comes from people learning uh, choreographies to uh, Michael Jackson, to Janet Jackson, to, you know, early pop singers. Um, well, not early, but, you know, 1980s pop singers mm-hmm. um, and performing those those dances. And then it just beca- became kind of a, a generalized phenomenon. The more um, we had these web enabled uh, modes of, of sharing in um, uh, these popular choreographies. Um, in terms of what is potentially problematic about it, uh, this goes back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of, um, you know, the, the way media artifacts circulate through the web tends to be without context. So, for example, if you if you if you uh, have a video on YouTube and you go through all of the work of um, providing the description, tagging it, um, uh, including um, you know, citations for the music that you used, maybe even references to, you know, how you were inspired to create this particular video. The moment you embed it or the moment you share it, all of that information, all of that uh, contextualizing information has been pulled away from the video itself. So mm-hmm. uh, one of the dangers or one, uh, one of the consequences um, is the this kind of free floating? <laughs> the internet is full of free floating dances that have a, a very difficult time uh, remaining attached to um, the people who are innovating, the people who are creating within this uh, framework, and and then um, we have this false sense that oh well, I just learned it from the internet. Well, no, <laughs> you didn't just learn it from the internet. You learned it because someone went to the, you know, uh, effort of uh, creating that content 
uh, and, and putting it on, online to make it available. So the, the trouble or, or the, the difficulty is to reattach context um, to media items that have been constructed, that have been programmed to circulate as, as free-floating uh, entities. Right. And because this is America, the context that's often lost is that these dances were created by Black people and then <laughs> popularized on TikTok or YouTube or whatever by wealthier white teenagers. (laughs) Absolutely. And this is also something that happens as you cross from one platform to another, right? So Mm -hmm. we might see something being developed on um, uh, Dub Smash and then posted to TikTok, being developed on TikTok and then posted to Twitter, you know, and so as anything uh, jumps from platform to platform, it only exacerbates um, that decontextualization. Now, that decontextualization is not a foregone conclusion, but it is a value that is built into the, um, it's actually like encoded, it's an encoded value um, that that it does take work to to undo that value or to, uh, you know, impose or, or situate new values at the heart of how we, how we circulate social media. And it requires that we slow down. Mm-hmm. It requires that we don't just click, click like or, or click share. Yeah. Yeah. Because I mean, the idea that the text description of a video would be completely separable from the video itself is like a design choice that somebody, Correct. N- neither of us know, knows the name of made at some point. Right. Yeah. Um, so another phenomenon you talk about are flash mobs, these sort of, big, uh, you know, seemingly but not actually spontaneous uh, mm-hmm. dances in public, which I remember being just like ubiquitous sort of 10 years ago. Like <laughs> yes. it seemed like every other day there was a new one of these. And you you sort of shine a light on some slightly more, uh, you know, interesting and complex sort of political uses of flash mobs. So could you talk a bit about that part of your book? Yeah. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. Flash mobs <laughs> were... You know, and it's funny because flash mobs were declared dead in like 2003, but, you know, then the dancing flash mob emerged um, and, and the dancing flash mob had a good long run. Uh, in fact, I you know, every Halloween, <laughs> there's definitely a, a yeah. thriller flash mob. Um, but some of the some of the more political uses um, that I talked to are um, Flow 6-8 and uh, the Idle No More uh, movement. Uh, using flash mobs to kind of hold, uh, hold whether it's politicians or, or bankers in, in the case of uh, Flow 6-8, um, or whether it is a, a kind of broader social context um, with the Idle No More movement. Um, yeah, so situating dance in these public venues where they, you know, quote unquote, don't belong, um, so Flow 6-8, they did um, flash mobs uh, in, in banks. This was really, you know, in response to economic crisis. Um, and uh, they are flamenco flash mobs. Um, and flamenco, of course, also has a, a history of um, protest of um, this, this kind of response to oppressive regimes um, and so Flow 6A really captures that ethos and brings it into a, a contemporary political context and climate. Um, 
And they've also done flash mobs in, uh, you know, like Parliament. Um, so I, I find their work quite uh, disruptive and, and delightful. Um, with Idle No More, um, they tended to do round dances in malls. Um, round dances were performed uh, kind of as an intrinsic element to um, what I don't know more was was doing as an uh, as an indigenous rights movement, um, and the round dance was used, uh, as I understand it, to kind of reestablish connections uh, across difference, um, so that you know no matter where we're each coming from, our uh, destinies are co implicated. And the round dance really makes that uh, visible, that we are all connected. Um, and they often, uh, well, some, sometimes they were foiled, um, but uh, staged these uh, round dance flash mobs in, in malls, uh, as well as other, you know, plazas. The thing about flash mobs is that they require a lot of space. Uh, you can do a small you can do a small flash mob, um, but we we have tended to see um, flash mobs emerge uh, where there's quite a bit of space. So so plazas, uh, train station terminals, um, malls, uh, even airport terminals, um, public parks, um, public monuments. Um, so there's a way in which the, the flash mob itself is, is trying to uh, recuperate uh, or, or bring back a, a certain kind of um, publicity of the public or, or what I think of as the, the common dimension of these public spaces, uh, even if those public spaces have become privatized and have very mm-hmm. specific rules for how people may gather. Um, there's something about the flash mob that, that disrupts the the regulatory logic of those spaces. And you connect that to the sort of post 9-11 movement, but also one of the sort of central logics of neoliberalism is the winnowing away of any notion of the common good or the public. So Mm -hmm. you could also look at it as part of that kind of larger story. But how does it particularly change after 9-11, this notion of the public space? Well, so, you know, the the notion, well, I don't know how much the notion of the public space (laughs) changes, but the experience of the public space uh, changed quite a lot in terms of um, uh, a certain kind of uh, fear that pervaded a lot of public spaces, particularly these these open uh, spaces, which were newly patrolled um, by, for example, National Guardsmen, uh, or police officers um, to, you know, try to think about, um, you know, ways of moving that might indicate or might broadcast ill intent. And, you know, if there is a, a um, way of moving that, that broadcasts a, a deviation from the norm, it is certainly dancing in public. Um, <laughs> but it is... You know, the the idea here is that um, the kind of governing apparatus really homed in on public spaces uh, and regulating public spaces, regulating gatherings um, as part of a, you know, as part of the war on terror. Um, and so, you know, we, we see how the aftermath of this is still alive and well in terms of who feels comfortable, you know, being in 
uh, public spaces, uh, which kinds of public spaces, who continues to be targeted, uh, you know, pulled out, stopped and frisked, um, or otherwise, um, you know, uh, received in those open spaces with, with suspicion. Um, but in this post 9-11 moment, part of what I'm arguing is that in order to recuperate the, the public nature of public spaces, you know, something had to create an affective shift so that these spaces were mm-hmm. not uh, spaces of, of fear, but, but could, uh, you know, um, you know, <laughs> they could be spaces of joy and of, of delight and of surprise. And that surprise was not uh, a surprise that was connected to, to fearfulness. Um, you know, this is this is something that in the aftermath of the coronavirus, I think that we will have to see this a very similar operation yeah. happen again, where people, you know, um, <laughs> the way people inhabit public space right now is is highly uh, fraught, highly politicized. Um, how people move through public space, uh, and so I, I do expect that we will see uh, dance um, uh, participating in some kind of repairing or healing of those public spaces that that you know are inevitably uh, damaged through um, you know social distancing. Right. Yeah, this sort of hypervigilance about public space, but combined with a sort of like vagueness about you know what what threats we're supposed to be on the lookout for. Like mm-hmm. I always think about the. You know, I live in New York and we used to always see the, if you see something, say something right, signs. Exactly. It was exactly. sort of like, what am I looking for? Like, if I see something, Anything. like, it's New York. <laughs> there are people acting weird all over the place the every time. day. So, yeah, there's that sense of just sort of be, be you know, be careful. Be, yeah, like uh, a sort of general fear, which is supposed to take the place of an actual sensible response to, mm-hmm. you know, the real threats mm-hmm. of the world. Yeah. Um, I'd love to talk about some of the specific kind of YouTube videos that you talk about and sort of YouTube series. And one of them was girl learns to dance in a year, Uh um, which is, you know, quite, uh, quite self-explanatory on the one, on the one uh, face of it, but also like on day one of posting the first video of girl learns how to dance in a year. um, I guess girl wouldn't necessarily know if they succeeded. So um, (laughs) could you kind of describe this piece and how it fits into your larger arguments? Yeah. So um, uh, Karen X. Chang um, did this. uh, It it is a study in deliberate practice. So for those Mm -hmm. of you who are interested in what deliberate practice can do, it's actually a very profound uh, manifestation of that of that concept, and so what she does is she she uh, videos herself, um, uh, you know, dancing every day um, for a year, and she compiles um, several of those videos together, and then at the end of the year, she has this um, this kind of um, it's almost like a it's almost like a like a, a debutante ball kind of a like an emer- like a presentation to the public of you know having arrived um, as a dancer um, and and part of what is going on in this in this video and uh, and others like it certainly you know I, I isolate this particular example but it's not the only one by any means um, there are a few things that that happen in this one is um, Again, there's this rhetoric of, oh, I learned it on the internet. Instead of thinking, 
um, really kind of honestly about what it takes to learn something and what it takes to teach something. Um, what are the mutual investments that are required uh, in order to to actually, you know, learn something and learn something is different from picking up some moves, right? Um, so, you know, there are, there are many ways in which um, we all, all of us who are engaged in physical practices of any sort um, are always engaged in this process of, of, of picking up moves. But how does that then become dancing or rep- how does that represent having learned to dance? And what happens to all of the other bodies who um, participated in that process along the way? So whether they are teachers, whether they are dancers alongside you, whether they are uh, people who gave you feedback, uh, whether in person or online. Um, I'm really interested in this in this rhetoric of, of the autodidact when it comes to uh, dance practices or any physical practice, because they are they're irreducibly social. And so I don't really know how you claim to, to teach yourself. I don't actually know how you claim to teach yourself anything, you know, <laughs> dan- dance or, or, or non-dance, um, you know, and, and um, so I think it's a, I think it's a very interesting example of what happens when uh, in this case, knowledge uh, or dance practices that, that, like as a whole become detachable. It's not just this or that um, move or this or that dance challenge, but dance practice as a whole um, becomes detachable, but, but there's also a way which is deeply meaningful, you know, like, (laughs) I don't want to just throw her under the bus. Um, and quite moving. Yes, absolutely. Very, very moving and, and, and deeply meaningful. And as I said, it's really a a great illustration of what it means to have a deliberate practice, uh, in dance, this kind of daily ongoing, uh, investment, um, so I think that I, I think that that's also what makes it complex, and that's also why I think we need a, a larger conversation or, or or a better vocabulary, a more multiple vocabulary to think about this kind of transmission that happens in a decontextualized way, because it might be decontextualized and therefore be problematic from a certain perspective. And yet it can also fuel new meanings. And I don't think that those new meanings should be discounted. Um, But we're all kind of, uh, we we all have these inheritances um, that we don't always know the um, politics through which things have traveled in order to arrive at our bodies, right? We don't, we don't know the circumstances of arrival. Um, So how do we, how do we then hold ourselves accountable to the things we don't know? I I think it's a question of the ethics of movement writ writ large. Yeah. Um, Another piece you talk about is where the hell is Matt, which is a series of videos where this guy, Matt Harding uh, does the same dance in several countries around the globe. Um, This to me sort of feels like a reversal of the normal process by which, you know, influences from all around the world converge upon one dancer. This is one dancer sort of, uh, you know, appearing all around the world. So what was the sort of goal of this piece? And do you feel like he achieves this goal? Mm. Well, I don't know. I can't speak for Matt Harding in terms of what the goal was. Sure. Um, And I think that the goal or what I perceive as the goal or what I perceive as the effect is maybe a better way of saying it. What I perceive as the effect changed with each iteration. Um, so, you know, I, I think that uh, initially 
he was just doing his his dance as a fun thing to do in these places in which he traveled. Um, but then as he continued to do this, his relationship to these places uh, changed over time. Uh, the attachments deepened his recognition of uh, people beyond himself, um, you know, emerged as a as a theme, as an exploration within the Where the Hell is Matt series. Um, such that, you know, in the beginning, like he is center screen, he take like he's the focus. Uh, he is why we are watching the video. And later on, he uh, kind of displaces himself uh, and allows many other uh, individuals to enter into the frame. So that what we see is this kind of move from the individual to a larger sense of, of humanity. Um, it does have a little bit um it's a small world after all effect, but again, it's incredibly moving. It's in, like yeah. the, the portrait of coming together um, uh, across difference um, and across cultures is, is incredibly um, moving and well done in terms of its, uh, you know, the emotional manipulation of the, of the musical mm-hmm. score is, is quite effective. Uh, so, so again, I think it's, I think it's this question of, of how do we recognize that something is deeply meaningful for viewers and for participants while at the same time, like there's something else that is going on uh, inside of it in in terms of how we are recruited to participate um, in that particular phenomenon. Yeah. Well, Harmony Bench, I've already taken up so much of your time, uh, but thanks so much for being on New Books and Performing Arts to talk about your book, Perpetual Motion. I really enjoyed our conversation. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.